You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reed Trice with Religica. Today I'm speaking with Bruce Knotts, who's had a high impact career as a human rights advocate, including service in the U.S. State Department with diplomatic assignments worldwide. Currently, Bruce directs the Unitarian Universalist United Nations Office provides human rights advocacy at the United Nations. He co-chairs the UN Non-Governmental Organization Committee on Human Rights, among other responsibilities. When we sat down together, Bruce and I discussed whether there's a spiritual Hippocratic Oath. Take a listen. Well, I love the whole idea of human rights. I think I started off as an anti-racist, then I became a feminist, and actually quite a long time later in my life, I started actually advocating for sexual orientation, gender identity, inclusion, and I'm a gay man, so I was talking about myself. And somebody just told me today on a call, she said that, Bruce, you're much better at defending others than you are yourself. So I guess that's indicative of how my life journey went. Well, and you're living now in New York, and I know you're working right across from the United Nations. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with the Unitarian Universalists? Well, I when I took the job in 2008, actually I was hired at the end of 2007, I told them, I said, if you hire me, I'm going to follow a very aggressive LGBT advocacy program at the United Nations. And they hired me anyway. And I talked to our then president of the denomination, Reverend Bill Sinkford, who now preaches in Portland, by the way. And he said, Bruce, if you don't do this, you'll have to talk to me about it because I expect you to do this. So I really felt like I had the wind in my sails and I could go forward very aggressively, which I've done to make sure that LGBT rights were respected at the United Nations and around the world. So that's pretty much me. Oh, and I guess I should talk about my fabulous husband. My husband and I were married in Vancouver, British Columbia in 2006, because that was the only place we could get married at the time. He does event management. He works uh, New York and Tokyo Fashion Week, and he works for Apple. And he, uh, if we have a Democratic National Convention, he'll be working there too. Well, and, and you and I have had work years together in the Parliament of the World's Religions and other capacities. But one of the last things we did together was actually a meeting at one of the United Nations offices. It was actually for the religious where all of the religious affiliated groups meet. Could you say a little bit about that office? You have a number of colleagues there that the listener may not have an awareness that this exists. It's called the Church Center of the United Nations. It's owned and operated by the Association of Methodist Women. I sometimes remark that the Methodists seem to make the best real estate decisions because it's right across the street from the UN headquarters. So, And I think in 1960, when they bought the property and built the building, that was a very good call on their part. And a lot of churches have their offices in that building. So we're in that building. Of course, the Methodists are there, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Quakers, the Mennonites, and I could go on and on. So it's a, it's a good building to be in. The pandemic age has a way of changing the basic assumptions we have about ourselves, about safety, about social well-being, and even about how we go about living our daily lives, like walking into a grocery store. Would you say, has that been your experience as well? Has your life been changed where you are now in New York City? 
Yes, and, you know, I'm the kind of person, and as a person of faith, I think all of us are the kind that, that craves community. And we get together to worship, we get together to do good works, that's part of who we are. And not to have that community, or at least to have it only virtually, is something brand new. And what I'm finding is that you can have community virtually. We're most, of all, I think all of our church services are now done virtually. I think maybe our general assembly will also be virtual. It's the first time we've ever done that. And certainly I will miss the human contact, hugs and all of that. But we can be with each other and we are with each other using the technology we have. But it's, it's something new to all of us. I want to ask you about the moral responsibility that all religious and spiritual traditions have today. But picking up first on your point, although we're emphasizing social distance, what is the role of religion in terms of emphasizing spiritual proximity at this time? That's also crucial, isn't it? It's absolutely crucial. And it's why we try to meet how we can to, to keep those connections alive. And, you know, our obligations for service are not done. It's harder to do service. And I think one thing we have to really thank, and I think there's been a lot of public displays of thanks to our first responders, to nurses and doctors and people that are not at home in isolation, but actually on the front lines and risking their own lives and sometimes their families in order to help those in greatest need. And we need to do whatever service we can in whatever way we can in, in this pandemic and be prepared when things start to open up to really help those in great need. Because some people have been plunged into utter poverty and destitution and terrible situations. And I think it's our obligation as people of faith to help them. We hear often in society an emphasis on certainly gratitude toward those health workers, doctors, nurses, and others, and a kind of Hippocratic oath that they have to do no harm. Do religions also have a kind of Hippocratic oath, and how should they be living that out today in very local form, do you think? This is a pet project of mine. I talk about it quite a bit. And it's one of the things that really disturbs me about religion is that often religions do harm. And that should be the furthest thing from us. No matter what we believe about anything, our baseline has to be do no harm. And we should be able to graduate from doing no harm to doing some good. I am a gay man myself, so I kind of live in the LGBT world. And religion should not be doing anything to harm LGBT people. And that means no violence. That means no keeping people away from education, healthcare, housing, jobs, or worship. Religions can think, okay, same-sex marriage is sinful, and they will quote Bible verses. Fine. If you want to believe that, or if you want to debate that, that's perfectly fine. But it should not bar a gay or a lesbian or transgender person from worshiping in your place of worship because you allow adulterers to worship, and you know they're there. You allow people that are cheating on their taxes or, or gouging people at the, in their stores or whatever things that people do, they're all invited to worship and they're welcomed into our worship places. And we're hoping that they become better people through the experience. And nobody should be an exception to that. 
And certainly people, just because of their sexual orientation or gender identity or the color of their skin or anything else, should be barred from the blessings of worship and community. So it's starting with do no harm. And then when you accept that, okay, we're not going to do any harm, just like doctors and nurses take that Hippocratic oath to do no harm, then is there something we can do to heal? Is there something we can do to help? Is there something we can do to inspire and to motivate? And religions are very good at that when we try to, when we, when we actually get down to it. And so that should be what we should be about, is uh, inspiring, motivating, educating people to do better. It seems like in a time of retraction, however, narcissism has very little place to hide. It feels like a bright light is shined on it. It's relatively indefensible. Religion should have something to say about this knee-jerk reaction to defend and retract at a time when we should be hopeful and giving, don't you think? Well, that's been one of the most disturbing factors of where we are today is that we do see, as you say, this narcissism and really reprehensible behavior and words. And most of our religions are silent. And we're, we should not be silent in these moments. One thing that religion has always been able to do is speak truth to power. And we are called on to help the stranger. And our refugee policies are horrible. What we're doing to refugee children is horrible. And yes, some of our faith traditions have spoken out about that, but others have been silent or even complicit. And yeah, this, this defunding of the World Health Organization at the moment when the virus is spreading to the global south which are some of the most vulnerable parts of the world and with, you know, compromised health systems much more than our own, you know, they need the World Health Organization more than, than the more developed countries. And just at the time when that need is the greatest, the United States government is pulling its funding and it funds about 50% of the WHO budget. So that's, that's a big chunk of what they need to operate and we're pulling the rug out from under them at the time when the need is greatest. And that's just unconscionable. And we should be speaking out against it. Our, our churches, our places of worship, of whatever faith we are, we should be speaking out against that. It seems to me that those religious communities, as you're mentioning, Bruce, have a moral responsibility to respond. And at the same time, we have a context where each one of these religious communities requires some form of gratitude that's shown toward God, that's shown toward one another, and even toward ourselves, that each religious or philosophical tradition balances between a recognition that suffering happens in the world, there's deep contradiction, and on the other hand, there's this relationship of generosity between ourselves and God in the world. How do we continue, do you think, in this age to remember amidst contradiction that we must be responding, not just in terms of what we say, but in our actions that can be policy-based and can impact local to international decision-making. I mean, many people, including myself, have so much to be grateful for. I'm in New York City in the midst of the pandemic, the epicenter, and I'm really in no danger. I'm in a very comfortable apartment. I have food to eat. I have an income. I'm doing fine. And some people are suffering horribly. And I'm grateful for what I have. But I also think when you're blessed, 
is God blessing you or whatever it might be. But when you're blessed, that confers on you, or at least in my theology, an obligation. Because if you're just blessed and you kind of scoop up all your blessings and hold them to your breast, that's hoarding. That's, you know, that's selfish. And, and that's not what our faith tells us to do. We should be sharing those blessings that we have with those that don't have them. And it's that thing that we're not doing enough of. The other thing that I see in religion is that many faith traditions will have a single issue that will be the litmus test for everything. And so if there's a government like the United States government that's anti-abortion, then they get full support, regardless of anything else they may not may do or may not do. And to me, when we're judging politicians or governments or people or institutions, it can't be just how they behave on one issue that we may like. It's how they behave on all issues and how they're treating all people at all times. And we can't just base our support or lack of support on one issue only. Does gratitude from a religious or spiritual sensibility depend upon a selectivity about who we'll be grateful for? Or should gratitude kind of spill over into our lives, into policies, from communities, into the streets, and in a way that impacts not just how we see ourselves in the present, but how we're going to forecast our shared future? And I ask this question this way because we are at a bit of a rift point in society where in this crisis, we may have a creative capacity of reconstructing as a species how we'd like to go forward at the macro level, but in local communities, how we'd like to treat our neighbors. There should be something about gratitude then that's non-differentiating between us and others or between how many others are around us. What do you make of this in religion? Well, I see two things going on in the world at the moment. I see a push towards global community. We're all in this together. We've got to fight this pandemic together. We've got to fight poverty and hunger together. And so that's one impetus that I see going on, which, of course, I approve of. The other is the opposite. It's, I'm going to take care of me. You know, I'm going to take care of America first, India first. I mean, a lot of countries are basically taking care of themselves and damn everybody else. We don't care about other people. We only care about our own, our own race, our own ethnicity, our own nationality, our own whatever it might be. Sometimes I see religion is acting like their football teams. You know, you're rooting for your football team and, you know, to hell with the rest. And the fact of the matter is that we're all in this together and all people of faith should be working together, supporting each other, and sharing with each other, and taking care of everybody without exception. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the Center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.